Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen. Um, we're going to start there. But as you are getting there, um, what I have noticed, let me just kind of weave into our text here. Um, what I have noticed in parenting is that a lot of people have opinions on it. A lot of people have opinions on parenting. You already feel this, where this is going. And they have an opinion usually based on how you should parent until they actually have to go and parent. Um, and so, I mean, they have an idea, you know, I, I really, uh, you know, I read once, so it's not out of the experience of parenting, it's just something they've, they've read passively. It might not even be good, you know, it, it, it might be bad information, but they're just going, I've read this once, this is what you should probably follow. Um, and then, uh, you know, sometimes they're like, hey, I know someone who, this is kind of what worked for them in parenting, this is the way they went um, as a parent, um, or they try to relate their kid's story to another kid's story, um, to your kid's story, right? Because all kids are the same. Um, and, and so they say, hey, when my kid uh, crossed that path, when my kid came across that issue, here's how we handled it in hopes that you would handle it the same way. Um, so there's constantly opinions on how to parent. Um, some say, here's what I would do. Here's how I'd do it different than what you're doing. Here's how I'd probably do it better than how you're doing. And, and so the interesting thing is these parents with these uh, opinions, um, some have never even had kids. This is just what they're, they're reading um, on blogs and social medias and, and, and going, hey, here's what you should do. Um, and then also the interesting thing, you have the opinions of uh, parents who have been parents for a while. And they look tired. They look like they've been parents. Like they've had some kids and they feel tired and they feel worn out and, and they're somewhat falling out of practice. So, so they're maintaining the relationship with their kids, um, but it's not really a thriving relationship. So they're maintaining that relationship with their kids, but it's not really thriving. You know, the kids get older and the, and the relationship begins to just change more and more and, and the kid's not cute anymore, right? Let's just acknowledge that. They're not cute. They have wants and they have needs, and they usually contradict each other. So they want money, but then they want space, right? So they come up with this big spiel, and here's what I, here's what I want. I want some money. I, I want something from you. And then I want space from you. And then they have needs. They need patience as they're trying to navigate through this, this life as a, as a teenager, as a young adult, and as they get older. And then they, have, then, then they need help with issues that, that at, at some point you're kind of going, well, I don't even know how to navigate through those issues. And so there's this, there's this struggle and this balance in, in this parenting, and they're dealing with relationship troubles and tension of how to be a believer um, as a young person in this culture. Um, and, and they're needing help with things that you're going, I, I don't know how to navigate. You know, they need help with their homework. And you're like, I've never even heard of that math problem. I didn't even know that existed. That, that's not something we were after when I was your age. Um, and then, then they also have to try and deal with being your kid and how that all works and, and, and the issues then that, that you bring in and that they bring in. And there's this constant tension. And so in parenting, all these people with all these opinions... We see one is without practice, trying to, trying to give information, and the other is out of practice. One is without practice, and the other is out of practice. And I think this is something often that we run into in the church with the concept of love. This is something we often run into because there's, there's new believers or, or non-believers coming into our church 
without practice. Without practice. They've never walked through that relationship and they need some love. They need some love. And, and then we see older or seasoned believers who are out of practice, who have really forgotten how to love. They're, they're not active in relationships, so they're out of practice. And they forget that it's really all about love. So this morning, we're going to look at the part of our mission statement where it says to effectively reach out to the unchurched. We need to do that with love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And so we're going to look at those three parts. But, but let me just make it clear. It is all about love. And as we look at the other elements of acceptance and forgiveness, it's going to come back to love. And Paul, in the text that we're going to read, Paul outlines to the church in Corinth. This is what this letter is. Paul is writing to this church what love is to look like. Now, here's what irritates me about this passage. It's not Paul's fault. It's our fault. We have hijacked this verse and made it a wedding verse. Okay? So if you go to a wedding and they're like, you know, hey, the couple has chosen 1 Corinthians 13 um, and on love, what this love is. And we've just kind of hijacked it and, and made it something that is only relevant in, in weddings. Um, but really, if you read the text... This is, this is the antidote, Paul is saying, for the dying church. He's saying, listen, you can, you can have this in marriages. You can have, this is good. You can have this as part of your wedding ceremony. If you did that, I'm not knocking it. But, but if we really look at the text, it's not a text to be read as a part of a marriage ceremony. It's really what Paul is saying. Here's the antidote for how your church is dying. Here's the antidote for how your church is failing at loving one another. And so as we look at this text, I really want to be clear. Let's look in the context of it. Try, try to remove the, I once heard this at a wedding. And remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking to the church and saying, this is the antidote for you to become alive. And so in verse 1 of chapter 13, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so what Paul writes as the antidote to the dying church to become alive again, thriving again in the relationships based on how they love one another. He's really reflecting a message that Jesus made clear. That love is a command, not a concept. If you're taking notes, write that down. Love is a command, not a concept. When Jesus was sitting with his disciples, we see in, in John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, a new command I give to you that you love one another. And then he says, just as I 
have loved you. Now, remember, this comes up in Deuteronomy of the Old Testament and Leviticus. That, that it, that's a command that, that they're to love one another. But what Jesus adds in there that, that makes New Testament different is he says, do it as I have loved you. So let me just share with you two specific things that are happening in this text before he gives them this commandment. In the very beginning of John chapter 13, we read that Jesus gets down to the lowest level and washes the disciples' feet. I mean, this is the lowest servant role in the house. You cannot get any lower than a foot washer. And so Jesus gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. He models for them what it means to love one another. And then, and then before he gives this new command, Jesus puts it out there saying, hey, one of you is going to deny me. And, and here's what I find interesting. Jesus knows who it's at, and he doesn't excuse him from the table. Jesus knows who's going to betray him, and he doesn't exclude them from the table. So when Jesus tells the disciples that he wants them to love, it wasn't a concept with a bunch of wiggle room. That, that, that I'm going to love this way, you go love that way. He gave them tangible evidence and examples for how to love. He says, love like I do. No other way. Love like I do. And so then after he gives them this commandment, the, the, the third thing that we really see then is that Jesus calls out Peter and says, listen, uh, bro, you're going you're gonna to deny me. You're going to say you don't know me. When I'm going to go and die for you and display even more my love for you, you're going to say, we're, we're not friends. And Peter denies even in then, oh, Lord, how could I do that? I would not do that. And Peter denies it, and Jesus doesn't exclude him. He doesn't excuse him from the table. He continues to be in relationship with him. And so what I find interesting is all of this, as you read in, in John chapter 13 and, and uh, even a couple chapters later, all of this is happening around a dinner table. All of this interaction is happening around a dinner table where Jesus continues to model for them the genuine love that he has, not just for his disciples, but for all. And so he was vulnerable with them through, through the washing of their feet, eating with them and being honest with them. Like, he was real. He didn't just sit at the table and act like everything was okay. He was real with them. And part of being real was saying, here's, here's the issue that's going to come up. Here's what's really going to happen. But he loved them in such a way that he commanded them to do that. Didn't just give them a concept. Hey, kind of do this uh, every once in a while, but commanded them to do that. And so our role together as the church means that we are commanded to love as Jesus loved. But here's, here's the thing that is really important before we move on to any of our other points is that that cannot happen if we're not in relationship with Jesus. That cannot happen. You cannot genuinely love. You cannot adequately reflect Jesus if you do not have relationship with Jesus. And see, there's an alarming difference between knowing Jesus and knowing a lot about Jesus. See, there's people in the Bible that we often read. Earlier in John 3, we see that, 
that there's a Pharisee who knows a lot about Jesus, but he doesn't know Jesus personally in relationship. I mean, there's a big difference. Let me give you an example. When I was about 14 and a half, one of my favorite bands was called Audio Slave. If you've never heard of them, don't worry, don't go find them. You probably won't even like them. Um, but I had an incredible opportunity at 14 and a half, probably closer to 15, um, to be in a band. Um, I was a drummer, and I was in a band with guys who were in their late 20s. And we got to go down to Seattle for several days and record in Pearl Jam's studio. So if you've heard of Pearl Jam, we got to record in their studio where they would always record. Um, incredible experience, very humbling. And I mean, my drum set you know, I, I put this little drum set together and the microphone that they put in front of the kick drum was worth more than my drum set, you know, and so very humbling as a 14-year-old young guy and just uh, mesmerized. And we're down there and this guy comes in and I'm, I'm, I'm already done tracking the drums and I'm just bored in the tracking room and sitting there. And this guy comes in and starts talking with us. He's picking up his, his final master copies and uh, just say hello, he's friendly, and he's talking with the mixer guy, and he leaves, and the guy looks at me just kind of weird, like, do you even know who, who that was? And I was like, no, I have no clue. Who was that? Does he, like, does he mix on another day? Or... And he says, that was uh, Chris Cornell, the lead singer of Audio Slave. And I freaked. But I didn't, I didn't know Chris. See, we weren't even on a first-name basis. And I didn't know him, but I knew a lot about him. I, I knew some of his songs. I knew the lyrics. I could, I could recite it. I could play some of the drum parts to their songs, but I didn't personally know Chris. I wasn't in relationship with Chris. And so, see, I think there's an alarming difference. People know a lot about Jesus. They, they, they have their own opinion of who Jesus is, what he's about. But there's an alarming difference between knowing Jesus and knowing a lot about Jesus. And so if we're to love as a command, not a concept, we have to be in relationship with Jesus because that's what allows us to be in relationship with the Father. Because we have been accepted by God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We've been accepted by God. And so as we go out and love others as we've been commanded and build relationship with others and accept them as we've been accepted. That means acceptance is love in action. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Love or acceptance is love in action. First John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever not been accepted somewhere or by someone? Has there ever been a time in your life, maybe, maybe it's college, you signed up for that one college you really wanted to go to, you didn't get in? Maybe it was a job opportunity and, and it didn't work out. Uh, maybe it was a relationship and you really got shut down. Or maybe when you went through the process of getting a vehicle and you were not accepted. I mean, I remember getting our, uh, our car, our family car, a Ford Escape. And I remember this 48-hour process that was agonizing for me. Absolutely just agonizing. I mean, we went down on a Wednesday uh, to where my brother-in-law, Jeremiah, works. And he said, this is the car. I think you should come check it out. And uh, we looked at it. 
And we did so much work over that 48 hours trying to get that car. And, and so we showed proof of employment, both for Shauna and I. We, we showed identification. We say who we, we, you know, we're saying who we are. It's correct. Um, and then Shauna uh, had a new job from her previous job. So we had to get a letter that says, yes, she's going to work here. Uh, this is what she's going to make. That, that makes them, uh, you know, avail- able to, to purchase this vehicle. And then previously we had done a bunch of work trying to get our, our credit score up, just paying debt off, trying to be responsible. And I remember the, the 24-hour mark, just halfway through, we're sitting in Starbucks. We're sitting outside of Starbucks, because remember, we love coffee in the Lawler home. And, and we're just waiting for the call. We're eager for the call. And, we, and, and the funny thing is, we actually have so much doubt and, and just wondering, will we be accepted? We're just, we're just kind of doubtful. Neither one of us is the hopeful one in this. Like, oh, it's going to work out. It's going to be good. And, and, and here's the funny thing. We're so consumed with going, uh, will we be accepted? We didn't even test drive the car. We didn't test drive the car. For all we knew, if you popped the hood, it was rusted out, no engine in there, and we were about to buy it. We never test drove it. We never knew more than that. Uh, Jeremiah said, it's good. We trusted him. It was good. But we never knew. We were so focused on thinking, will we be accepted? And see, I wonder if that's how some people, how new people feel coming into church. They haven't been here long, and it kind of feels like they're in the application process. They keep feeling like like they need to show credentials. Showing, I am who I say I am. Here's what I've, what I've been through. Here's my proof of, of salvation. Here, I'm, 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 I'm worthy of the task. I can be here. I can be among you. And, and, and they're all along worrying, thinking, will I be accepted? Will I be accepted? They don't even, they don't even know if they're going to they're gonna like us, if they want to stay. And the question is, it is not uh, critical on us. It's, it's wondering of themselves, am I going to be accepted? And see, here's the difference. When someone comes into church, because of how our, our culture is surrounded by contracts, they're thinking with a contract mindset. And I think sometimes we do too. That, that in a contract of being accepted, it says, if you're accepted, we will love you. If you're accepted, we will love you. But the gospel says, because of Jesus, I love you, therefore you are accepted. I love you, therefore you are accepted. And Brennan Manning, in one of his books, says this incredibly, that I think aligns where the heart of our church needs to be focused in. He says, Jesus comes not for the super spiritual but for the wobbly and the weak need, who know they don't have it all together. They're acknowledging this, and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. And something is radically wrong when the local church rejects a person who is accepted by Jesus. Something wrong when we reject the person who's accepted by Jesus. And then he says this that just punches you right in the soul. Any church that will not accept that, it consists of sinful men and women and exists for them, implicitly rejects the gospel of grace. 
If we do not acknowledge that we're, that we're, full, of, we're full of people who are struggling through the, the, the life surrounded by sin, then, then we're rejecting the gospel of grace. And that's why Paul tells the Romans in, in 15, chapter 15, verse 7, he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And why? For the glory of God. Not for, not for the sake of making our church look good, making our church bigger or better, but for the glory of God. So shift the focus that we would welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. And see, if, if we're going to do this, I think what, as we uh, close on our, on our last piece, I think it has to be that we acknowledge we're forgiven people by the work of Jesus that go out and for, are forgiving people and modeling a forgiven life. And so forgiveness is giving grace because grace was given. Forgiveness is giving grace because grace was given. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's a book by the author C.S. Lewis, and you may have read it before. It's called The, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it's one of my favorite stories, and I will forever hate the movie for them uh, just messing with the gospel message of C.S. Lewis's writing. Um, but if you've seen the movie, you've missed out because the writing of what Lewis writes about is about the incredible redemption and transformation that happens through Jesus. And so he, he describes in his book uh, this character, this young boy named Eustace. Eustace, Eustace. Uh, but he describes him as just a pain, a red-headed little kid that is just annoying as all get up. And, and he describes him as one who is just constantly at odds with everyone. There's always a tension somewhere, and he's always trying to get the best of everything. And it describes when he's on this ship with a group of people that the ship stops at an unknown island for some repairs, and he, and he wanders off, and he stumbles upon a great pile of treasure. And this great pile of treasure is in an abandoned dragon's lair. And he's in this area, and it says after grabbing just as much of the, of the treasures, of the gold that he can, I mean, he's stuffing things in his pockets, he's putting uh, things on his head and on his arms and his legs, and as much as he can carry, after doing all this, he just gets tired, and he sat down, he fell asleep, and Lewis describes him as thinking dragonish thoughts that filled his heart. And so then Eustace later awakes and finds himself no longer a boy. That he's actually transformed into this dragon. And as much as he tries to make it work, he tries to maintain, I was once a boy, but I'm a dragon, and here's my, here's my current state that I'm in. He can't make it work. And so Aslan, who is the portrayal of God, perfectly just leads him to a clear pool of water. And Eustace is just certain, it describes that, that, that this will ease the discomfort of just the battle internally going on within him. The discomfort would be eased. 
And three times it says that Eustace scratches at his dragon scales and sheds his dragon skin, hoping that it will resolve. But every time he scratches, he finds a new layer, a new issue. And he can't do it. And so Aslan tells him, you must let me do it for you. Just let me do it for you. And so if you're someone who's just kind of a visual person, just close your eyes for a second. I'm going to read you this piece of this, of this text out of his book. And Lewis says, The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure and the relief of feeling the scales peel off. And he peeled the scales right off, just as I thought I'd done myself three times before. Only they hadn't hurt when I had done it. And there it was, laying, lying in the grass, only ever so thicker and darker and more ugly, misshapen and, and beastly looking than the others had been. And naked and trembling, Eustace bathes in the pool and is once again a boy. He comes up and Aslan gives him a new set of clothes and he transports him back to the beach where the ship awaits. Back to his new life his transformed life. And so this morning, as you open your eyes, as Christians, as believers in Jesus, we walk in that transformed newness of life. And I think some of us have never, never experienced that. Some of us have maybe been out of season experiencing that. And I think sometimes what we get into is we get into returning to where God once brought us out of. And we're still thinking dragonish thoughts that are filling our hearts. And because of that struggle, we're not able to reach out with love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Because we've once forgot that those things are what God extends to us. And so what we're going to do at the, at the close of our service now, as the team closes us, we're going to take communion together. And as we take communion together, I just want us to take a moment of reflection on remembering what Jesus has done on the cross for us. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, where Paul describes... Uh, before explaining the importance of love, he explains the importance of communion. He explains the importance of taking the Lord's Supper. And he says, let a person examine himself then, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so I just want us to take a couple minutes of reflection, acknowledging that, that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was Spilt, and this is how God showed his love, his acceptance, and his forgiveness towards us. And so I, I think we often just shift really quick to, 
to just breaking the bread, taking the elements. But um, I really just, before we sing any song, before we do anything else, that we would just take a moment to, to really just reflect, maybe repent. Maybe there's, maybe there's something going on in your heart where there's just some, some frustration towards another. Maybe there's, maybe there's just a disconnect between you and God. You know, the psalmist says, uh, search my heart and know me. Point out if there's, if there's anything in me that, that, would, that would grieve you. So let's just take a couple moments to just reflect and repent. Repent.